Welcome to the Vape Week, and you can reach me at vapingindustry at gmail.com, vapingindustry at gmail.com. Indeed, welcome. I got a couple different items, and one of them is going to be actually listening to the FDA um, webinar on vape shops. They've done, uh, I just don't think that people are aware that this exists uh, for some reason, that's just my guess. And so going to do just like I did uh, on a couple of different other uh, webinars is going to play it, uh, stop and start it and talk about it and see what I think. And you can listen to hear what they think and, uh, you know, somewhere in the middle is going to be the truth. Um, and so uh, that, that'll be the last portion of the show. As always, your calls are welcome. Uh, so if you want to call in the phone number uh, to direct this show in any direction that you want, uh, it's available to be directed, and uh, you can direct me at 347-308-8329. I talked about Safada last week. I don't have any updates. The only thing that I know is that uh, there was some sort of board meeting this week. Uh, I don't know any of the content. I wish I did. I tried to find out. I wasn't able to find out, um, but from from last week, what we found out is that the board, for whatever reason, decided to uh, dramatically change the roles of Cynthia Cabrera, and the outcome out of whatever tussle occurred with the board is that Cynthia is no longer with the organization. I just don't know what the, the ultimate outcome is going to be, but uh, the document that was from last week says they're going to spend a lot of time working on uh, bylaws and things like that, which, you know, today is the 8th. There is literally exactly one month left. What that means for what you have to do to demonstrate that your product is on the market is something that I'm still trying to uh, really boil it down and make. There's there's a chance that I can make a publication that would be helpful in doing that. Uh, I don't think anybody else has talked about doing that. I'm still looking at doing that. It's a free country, so if somebody's going to beat me to it, I guess that's the way it should go. Uh, but I will, I will be reaching out to a couple different people uh, to see if I can make that happen. So I, we just don't know uh, what is coming out of Safada, except for one thing that that came out of Safada yesterday, is that uh, Cap O'Rourke, who's the president of the board, put out a interview with uh, Congressman Cole. I tell you, I, I listened to most of it. Uh, I haven't listened to all of it, but I just, you know, as, as far as a man, uh, I really like this guy. He is just a great congressman. He is just a, he's plain spoken. He, he's articulate and he's on the right side of where things should be. So what I'm going to do right next is to, uh, to play a section out of that. It's about a 30 minute interview and you can go and find that by going over to, uh, Safada, and um, it's uh, Congressman Tom Cole. Uh, the interview was released on the 7th, Episode 8, Congressman Tom Cole on legislation impacting the vaping industry. There's a couple things that, that came out, is that VTA put out a message that Congressman Cole had abandoned, essentially, 
HR 2058 and was really just thinking that the people should be pursuing the Cole Bishop Amendment. And what I hear in this interview uh, is he absolutely clearly says that the, the best option is HR 2058. The Cole Bishop is a stopgap. There's some things like that. I just think that when he said that, it, it's directly contrary to what information was coming out of ETA. And obviously, uh, if you've been listening to the show, I've had comments on the whole VTA stuff on, and all, all of the different things that have come out of them. Okay, here, here's one of the, the comments from uh, VTA. It's, uh, for these reasons, we must unite both industry and consumers to save our industry adult consumer choice and the right to vape. Today's action by the FDA makes passing the Cole Bishop Amendment all the more urgent and imperative. In short, the Cole Bishop Amendment is the is our only viable path to survival. And it says further on this May 5th document, the Cole Bishop Amendment is the only immediate vehicle that can change the predicate date. The former Cole Bill HR 2058 has been supplanted and uh, I'll tell you what I'll copy that word because I think I know exactly what it means uh, replaced um, made obsolete abandoned the former coal bill HR 2058 has been supplanted and coal has endorsed the new approach publicly given the comments made by the FDA and the anti-vaping groups a standalone bill uh, to only change the predicate date, in other words, HR 2058, has no chance of success. And so this, uh, we all must fight for the Cole Bishop uh, Amendment and, and the appropriate, join the fight. So this was put out by VTA, and it was also put out by Kevin Skipper, and it was also put out by Dimitri and uh, Phil Bersardo, and that was the entire message, is essentially... HR 2058 is done for and uh, you know it has to be the Cole Bishop or nothing else and in this document it's even saying that uh, the bill has been supplanted supplant past tense supplanted another discovery could supplant the original it means supersede and replace so it's supersede replace uh, displace take over from substitute override so it, it is so when he says it's uh, supplanted uh, that that he agrees that it's been supplanted. What did he exactly say? Uh, the former coal bill HR twenty fifty eight has been supplanted, and Representative Cole has endorsed the new approach publicly. So it implies there that Congressman Cole has abandoned his own HR twenty fifty eight. In the time since May fifth that this has come out, there's been I think between 25 and 30 nearly the number of people that voted for the Cole Bishop amendment have joined on to HR 2058 has had as many people as supporting the appropriations bill now sign on to HR 2058 since this information I think they've added somewhere between 20 to 30 uh, new congressmen I think the number is about 65 that I think are now signed on to HR 2058. I'm not sure the exact number. I know that one Democrat has signed on to it as well. Um, so it's now bipartisan. Uh, so why why am I mentioning all this again here? It's because Congressman Cole in the Safada interview 
says that his pe preference and the better option for the long term is HR 2058, directly contradicting the messaging that has been put out by Dimitri, uh, by Kevin Skipper, by VTA, uh, and by some other people. And, you know, at this point, you can say, Ed, give it a rest. Uh, it is what it is. And, uh, you know, I guess I can say the same thing. Uh, but it is what it is. Okay, so right now I'm going to go ahead and play uh, a section, uh, not a very long section, out of the interview. This is Congressman Cole. He's the author uh, and the biggest friend of vapors that currently resides in Washington, D.C. Um, and, and as I said earlier, I just, think, I just think he's a nice guy and I really enjoy listening to him. So here it goes. A trend now of more and more health advocates starting to understand how that February 15, 2007 That's predicate date is problematic and could severely uh, hurt the harm reduction potential of vapor products. Um, the former director of the American Cancer Society, who was recently on this podcast, said that if, if we don't change the predicate date, we could lose about 15 to 20,000 small American businesses across the U.S. Um, your bills are a huge necessity uh, to protecting these small businesses. But now, as we as we are watching the Cole Bishop Amendment, we're hearing that there may be efforts to be a floor challenge to remove that from the appropriations bill. Do you do you think this is likely? Well, it's certainly possible. Now we you know not to drag you know average law-abiding, uh, clear-thinking Americans into the complexities of the appropriations process in the political year. <laughs> Up here, but uh, there's a there's a chance that bill may not go directly to the floor. In other words, it may go directly into negotiation with the Senate, probably after the election, and then we would know whether or not we could leave that. And you know, part of this too is the administration's very much, I mean, uh, opposed to this. And now they're opposed to it because they think they ought to be able to regulate everything. I'm not surprised the president is backing up his regulators and, and that he appointed. But at some point, somebody over there needs to stop and look at the evidence and say, before you stop something, before you engage in, in measures that are so catastrophic that we're going to destroy thousands of businesses and we're going to make it perfect, much more difficult for Americans to get off of tobacco by using a, uh, you know, a, a product that is both lawful and that all the evidence suggests helps them rather than hurts them. Uh, you know, that's maybe when you need to turn and question your own regulation. Say, guys, go go do some science over here, and if you got some evidence, then come back and we'll deal with it. In the meantime, let's not destroy an embassy uh, on the basis of what's really your prejudice, because you have no evidence. You know, and this is this is both prejudice and pride. A lot of them are very prideful at how dare you. You know, if you're not a scientist or you're not this or that, challenges. Well. First of all, the challenge is being mounted by the people. I mean, <laughs> you know, I got involved in this. I'm sure my colleagues have gotten involved in this. It's because their voters came and talked to them about it uh, and, uh, you know, and said, hey, my personal experience is contrary to what this agency is trying to do. It here how's, Here's how it's going to impact my business. Here's what it's going to mean for us. Uh, and that's what gets lawmakers' attention. Uh, but, uh, you know, these bureaucracies sort of act like, well, you're – you're really only here to give us power. You're not here to restrict the power that we have. Well, that's not what the Constitution says. Actually, we are here to defend basic constitutional liberties. And again, we should not have regulations on things 
uh, you know, to this degree that destroy businesses and, uh, and uh, you know, keep a, a product that appears to be very helpful away without the strongest of evidence. And the evidence we have, again, is all on the other side of this so far. And it's not just evidence the industry has made up or some group that, you know, has a vested interest. It's evidence from health professionals in the United Kingdom. It's evidence from some of our own scientists here. Evidence from people that have been active, as you mentioned, uh, in the prevention of cancer and and the uh, rollback, if you will, of tobacco in American life. So maybe we ought to listen to them before we take draconian action that's going to have terrible consequences. Yeah, so so for the, the many businesses and people listening that have been pushing hard and continue to work to talk to their representatives about supporting H.R. 2058 and the Cole Bishop Amendment, what what advice or message do you have to make sure that we can avoid last year's fate where it was kind of dropped out in, in the final negotiations and ultimately be able to keep the uh, predicate date change in whatever bill passes? Well, people need to talk to their members, and particularly members on the Appropriations Committee, be they Democrat or Republican, particularly if you happen to be, uh, uh, you know, in uh, one of the leaders' district, the Speaker, you know, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, but also their Democrats. This should be a very bipartisan effort. Anything up here right now that is heavily partisan uh, or, or, or seen to be will not prevail. And probably should not prevail, by the way, but this should not be a partisan issue. This is not something that I see where Democrats or Republicans should have different views on based on their governing philosophy. They just need to look at the scientific evidence and the economic impact uh, and come down on the side of the freedom of the American people to use products that they want to use, absent compelling evidence that it's harmful, and the freedom of Americans to establish businesses and uh, you know, employ people, have an opportunity to, to enjoy the American dream when they're doing it in ways that, frankly, contribute to the economic prosperity and probably the overall health of the American people. Uh, you know, that's pretty productive. That's not something we want to stop. And, again, if you've got evidence that there's something here, okay, that's another matter, but you don't. And, uh, you know, I think, again, a lot of this is just, well, I'm sure if we keep looking, we'll find the evidence. Well, you know, so far, there's the people that have looked have found evidence that suggests this is a helpful practice uh, as compared to smoking, and certainly this is economically uh, uh, something that uh, is creating jobs, not destroying them, and creating them in ways that probably help us uh, deal with, uh, you know, a much more serious problem in terms of tobacco. So, you know, but people do have to contact. Uh, if, if members don't know, and again, most members don't vape. Most members, uh, you know, are not involved in the industry. The industry itself is not like, you know, uh, in any single place where you employ thousands of people. It's just the classic small business kind of enterprise. And most small business I know people are so busy running their business. They don't have a lot of time to have lobbyists or whatever. But in this case, they've got to start talking to their individual members. And you don't have to travel to Washington, D.C. to do it, all hours else. But catch them on the campaign trail. Go down to their district offices. Uh, you know, Sit down with them. Educate their staff. That's how we learned about it, really. it was. You know, the, most members really uh, are educated by their voters. That's what voters do. You, you don't. I mean, sometimes you can come and tell them something they don't know, but more often they're telling you something you don't know because 
there's no way you can be involved in everything going on in your state or your district. And if you don't know, uh, you know, if nobody's educated you, well, then it's easier. Well, I guess I'll just listen to the FDA or I'm sure the administration knows something about it. Well, in this case, I don't think they do. And I'd rather, you know, at the end of the day, uh, do what my voters asked me to do and my constituents who have practical experience with this and listen to somebody up here that, well, I don't have any evidence, but I sort of feel it's wrong. And if we let it get a foothold, it'll be worse. Well, it's already gotten a foothold. And uh, this idea of destroying an industry and keeping Americans from having access to a product that helps them deal with a tobacco addiction, I think is just, it just doesn't stand up under scrutiny and, um, you know, you, Give me the evidence. Give me the logic. So far, all the evidence and logic I've seen has argued for this industry to be allowed to exist and, and to uh, continue to help people and, and to continue to be part of our economic growth. Well, I, Congressman, I would like to thank you for your time and sharing your thoughts today, and not only uh, for your leadership position on this important issue to our industry, uh, which can certainly protect thousands of jobs and small businesses across the country if it is enacted, but but also your effort as the organization has reached out to you with uh, sometimes concerns or clarification on the language. You and your staff have been more than willing to get back to us and, and enter, when there are issues, enter into a dialogue to make sure that we are doing what we can to protect this industry and protect the small business owners. It, it well, thank you. It. Thanks for your efforts because I think uh, you know what you're doing is actually helping the American people have access to an important product and frankly helping people that in all good faith, you know, started businesses and made real efforts and real investments and, and now have the danger through no fault of their own of having those businesses destroyed by what's really capricious and arbitrary action by a regulatory agency. All right. So I don't think I've heard a better summary and articulation of the vaping industry fight uh, by anyone within the industry or outside of the industry, much less from a politician. What he just said there uh, was beautiful. <laughs> hate to use those type of words, but he just really, he, everything that you would expect or want from a congressman on an issue uh, that relates to businesses and health and everything, he just knocked it out of the park. Just a, a pure grand slam um, just, just great. Um, so what I'll try and do now uh, is try and find uh, that other section that I was thinking through um, regarding uh, which of the amendments that he wants. Political landscape these days? Uh, well, I introduced them both because I, I saw the regulatory arm of government doing what it so often does, and that's crush initiative uh, and impose its judgment uh, on people's judgment. We, you know, we have a lot of people in bureaucracies that assume rulemaking authority is the same as lawmaking authority. And to be fair, we've let it become that way. Uh, this, this leads you to a whole different discussion on what Congress needs to do. Uh, you know, one of the things the House passed a number of um, times and the Senate yet to pass is something called a RAINS Act. And it says anything that causes more than $100 million worth of damage or impact uh, on the um, uh, economy uh, has to be, if it's you know regulation has to first come to Congress before it can be implemented and Congress has to vote on it uh, and that way you can hold your congressman accountable and you can lobby him it's pretty hard to lobby a faceless bureaucrat this is a classic one of those cases where clearly 
we've got uh, the FDA getting ready to impose a regulation uh, that's going to cause well more than $100 million worth of damage to the economy. Uh, and yet, nobody's going to be able to hold them very accountable for it in the way you can hold an elected member. You could say, hey, you do that, buddy. You're putting me out of my job. I'll put you out of your job. Uh, you know, you have a chance then. And so uh, I thought getting the bills up would at least generate some discussion. Uh, obviously, the great thing about the the uh, uh, Cole Bishop Amendment, I really want to thank Sanford uh, Bishop, uh, who's a Democrat from Georgia, great, great member of Congress and uh, great uh, member of the Appropriations Committee. And Henry Cuellar, by the way, from Texas, also another Democrat that uh, was supportive in this, uh, ma making it bipartisan. I mean, they're listening to their constituents and they're thinking, hey, uh, you know, let's help with this amendment. And the amendment has a chance of, of you know, limiting what the FDA can do because it's attached to their spending bill. So it basically shuts down their spending uh, to enforce this rule until Congress actually acts. The, the better fix would be the bill itself, because that's the permanent thing. It's not an annual thing, uh, and it would change the law and uh, give some certainty to the business. And that's what every business person needs. You need certainty in your taxes, certainty in your regulatory code, uh, but you also need uh, you know, Congress working with you in a meaningful way. So uh, I think they're both helpful measures. Uh, the, uh, the Cole Bishop Amendment's the best one in the short term. Uh, but that would be roughly the end of this year by the time we get that done, probably. Uh, if, assuming we can survive negotiations, we don't have a comparable vehicle in the Senate. And then, uh, But if we could get the, the legislation across the floor, that would be far, far better. Yeah. I, I got two follow-ups uh, on that. And, and you and I, I met with you in your office in Oklahoma a few weeks ago, and and we had talked to you about the Cole Bishop Amendment. And there are some in our industry who are a little bit concerned about the battery language regulation. And, and I think there were some businesses that fear that we may be changing the predicate date, but this would give the FDA the ability to basically also shut down the industry via overly, overly strict uh, battery mm -hmm. regulations. But that's certainly, in our conversation or, that we had a couple weeks ago, that was not your intention. No, not at all. And as a matter of fact, you know, I would urge people that have that concern to come help educate uh, Representative Bishop and myself. And we've got a guy on our staff, Steve Waskowitz, who works this issue and knows it really well, because we can still change language. I mean, just because an amendment happens, if once we that just moves it on that vehicle, it's still got to get across the House floor or be negotiated with the Senate. And we're very open. Uh, to things because the intent here is to protect the industry. It's not to shut down, and it's certainly not to give uh, give additional uh, weapons, if you will, <laughs> to the bureaucracy to use against people. So we're all ears on that. The, the real aim here, again, though, is the, the industry does change, and you know, we did listen to what some of the critics had to say uh, last year. So we did add evidence, uh, or excuse me, language that would make it tougher for minors to engage in uh, uh, this activity and do things, you know, if there were obvious problems. And that was meant to shield the main, uh, you know, bill from criticism. And uh, look, nobody's, I know, that is in vaping, is interested in young people doing it. But uh, 
uh, you know, we are interested in adults, uh, you know, having access to a legitimate product that helps them and that they enjoy. And that yeah. we have no scientific evidence at this time suggests that it does anything wrong. Yeah, yeah, no, I that, that, that's exactly it. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, Congressman uh, Bishop and, and Quayar. Uh, and, and we also had, uh, you know, additionally, Representative, as I sit in Representative Colin Peterson's district today, he recently signed on. He was the first Democrat to sign on to the H.R. 2058 bill. Yeah, he did. So, he actually sought me out on the floor. Collins, one of the guys I really admire in Congress. I mean, he's a, certainly a very strong uh, Democrat, but a, a guy that w- literally works across the aisle in a very productive way. And he's an honest, uh, you know, really thoughtful, straightforward kind of guy. And I think uh, this, he got educated by this by his constituents. And that's, that's the best way is to go talk to members. I mean, Right now, uh, we honestly need more Democrats on the bill and involved in the effort. And I think uh, some of the anti-tobacco groups have persuaded them that this is somehow some, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, head under the tent in terms of that. And it's not. It's not what it's meant to do at all. It's actually meant to make available to people in the vaping area, uh, you know, an alternative that seems to work and seems to be better for them. And then to protect other people, like the premium cigar industry, uh, from you know regulation that is just ridiculous. You should not be allowed to regulate retroactively. Nothing in the amendment of the bill prevents the FDA from regulating. As a matter of fact, in some ways, it, it makes it easier, because right now they have to regulate product by product, if you will, and there are thousands of varieties out there instead of class by class. But, uh, you know, again, it's, uh, you're imposing such horrific financial burdens on small industry that you're really, you might as well say we're, we're mandating that you shut down your doors because you're creating uh, financial conditions that are impossible for them to operate under. And so people end up losing their businesses, their savings, the consumers lose access to a product that uh, uh, appears to be helpful to them and that many of them really, number one, enjoy, but number two, thinks makes a positive difference in their health, I mean, government shouldn't be allowed to make those kind of decisions, particularly when it doesn't have the scientific evidence to back them up. All right. So, I mean, I don't think anybody can listen to that and not just be impressed by this guy. Uh, Put him up for vice president. I mean, he's that good. Um, There was one thing that he said in there talking a little bit about that it could be things could be done on a category wide basis. And that was the same difficulty that I had. Uh, when he spoke on the floor and was talking about flavors. I'm not sure if that was just some sort of error or or what, um, or, or maybe just confusion uh, by the people that listened to it, one of those people being me. But I think he, you know, he is definitely clearly saying that the best vehicle now and in the future is H.R. 2058. And, and it clearly, as more people come on, it is still moving. Uh, and people just said that it, it stopped moving. And, uh, you know, uh, Dimitri said straight out, you know, it was a nice try, but you guys just have to accept that it failed. It's, it has not failed. It's still going on. I'm impressed by the interview, as you can tell. Uh, so if people want to listen to the whole thing, they can go to the safada.org and then uh, look under, uh, it, it's episode eight. Um, in in the Safada blog, 
uh, and I would encourage everybody that is serious about what's going on uh, is to listen to the the horse himself uh, rather than to to get spin. Uh, and so Cap O'Rourke did the interview. The first time I've ever heard his voice, and it's a good interview at least. Um, going back to the whole Safada kerfuffle, what's going on with VTA? Again, no, no update on that. I don't know what's going on. Uh, I'm waiting for some sort of better communication to come out of Safada uh, to the general public and not just their members and or their chapter leaders and or their board members, something that comes out to the rest of us. And uh, I assume it'll be forthcoming because uh, I just can't imagine there's that much work to do with the bylaws, uh, even though they said they're going to spend three to five weeks working on them. So that's that item. Let me go back to my short list. Uh, the Royal College of Physicians this week, number two, the second item now, is the Royal College of Physicians have come out with a report talking about what their recommendations are to politicians and healthcare providers. And their, again, their assessment of, of vaping, its uh, usage and cessation, and all of the rest. And this report, I think, is the most significant report to come out yet because it's an aggregation of all of the data and science that uh, you know the UK has been doing on electronic cigarettes and it's all peer-reviewed and it's all solid and um, it's absolutely a hundred percent usable in and by the FDA uh, they, they they cannot ignore this uh, there's some people that think that some sort of uh, there's a lot of misinformation going out there uh, that only a American-based study is going to hold water and have uh, validity, and uh, and some vapors say that, and that's likely because there's been some uh, politicians that have said that. When it comes to the FDA itself, that doesn't hold any validity. They must use, and when I say must, I mean must, uh, shall. The FDA must use this data when submitted to it and review it with the same amount of rigor and, and validity uh, as anything that comes out of just from the United States and United States researchers. Uh, that's a fact. Uh, it's in the deeming itself. It says it straight out in black and white. Uh, so that is a great report. Uh, people, I, I've posted the actual report out on Facebook and all the various groups. So I presume that if you're listening to this, you've seen something on Facebook. Um, just search on the news out of uh, the Royal College of Physicians and Health uh, Healthcare UK or whatever the right name is. Uh, it's the It's the UK's... FDA has published this. So that's fantastic news. Absolutely fantastic news. As I talked about last week, uh, everybody should and is, and it's very clear that everybody is, is trying to push out as many new products as they can before the 8-8 date. Um, I actually think that is a wise plan by everybody. Uh, it doesn't matter if I think it's wise. It certainly is what everybody's doing. And uh, so that's what's going on with the industry. Uh, I think that, as again, I keep on saying, and nobody has refuted it to this point, is that any type of uh, hardware which is sold without nicotine as a finished good product is out of bounds of the FDA and that they will continue to be able to do that. Uh, I'm still trying to get information out from uh, the CVA members what their official position is going to be. 
because I think their position is that we will continue to sell it. Now, there's some people that think that they will just manufacture it and people will sneak the stuff in uh, through importing it. That won't fly. Uh, I think that the FDA has the regulatory muscle and the connections to quickly uh, stop anything like that happening. So if they were, and this is a conditional statement, if they were to assert that hardware as a finished goods product without nicotine is regulated, is able to be regulated, which they're not, but if they were, they would have the capability and the means to stop its importation into the United States at every single level of importation. So that means if you were an individual vape shop, they would get around to you and quickly. If you were a large online retailer selling it, they would get around to you and quicker. And so I, I still maintain and believe, and nobody's contradicted me, that, that these products, new, say Aspire, comes out with a brand new product. It's a fresh tank, a brand new coral design. Never been, never. It's all brand new, unique, and it comes out uh, right in time for Christmas. Comes out in no, November. Uh, that they'll be able to sell that without any uh, impact from the FDA, and I believe that that's what Aspire's lawyers will tell them, and I believe that that is what Aspire will go ahead and pursue. But. We haven't heard that official remark back from Sevia or from any of the, uh, the, the individual companies themselves. And so we'll find out how the, that thing goes. Um, but that's where I currently think it is. People are going to need to be able to demonstrate that they were on the market. I think I've already touched on that uh, in, in this show itself, uh, that they were on the market. I went through the different dates and things. There, there's some, uh, there, there's the normal and constant hum of uh, people have to do things that the way that other people want on Facebook, or else they'll be, uh, they'll be put on blast. I guess is the thing. I, I think there's a lot of vape companies that um, are not on Facebook that are absolutely going through the process of putting in their PMTAs, and they will succeed. Um, I absolutely believe that. I have spoken to, to one company um, and I absolutely believe that this company with the resources that they're expending will get past the PMTAs. So I absolutely reject the notion that no vapor companies are going to get passed on the PMTAs. And one of the things that I've been working on for a period of time uh, about a year and a half is actually generating PMTAs. The whole basis of that is what I've called a rock soup model. That's where uh, people pitch in together to get the to have the necessary resources to put in a PMTA and then share in the fruits of that work. Funding that is a problem. Uh, because it's not going to be just things there will have to be some things like simple toxicology and uh, some simple representations of uh, of how these things affect humans and things like that it, it is certainly doable uh, I've to do this uh, I would need to get some buy-in from some various e-liquid companies and to fund it I've have a couple different models to do one could be a membership one one could be uh, uh, it, it, it just a, a joint task force type thing um, 
to, to have the resources to do this if people bought in and, and believed that this was a, a viable way to do it. And that would have to be demonstrated before anybody did anything. The other method to do it is to have some sort of um, literally an e-liquid funding model that would essentially fund the effort through the sale of a unique product of e-liquids and then that after it was funded would then have the output that is necessary which would be a PMTA an approved PMTA and then from an approved PMTA then it can be figured out how to push that out to other companies that wanted to use it and then there's the third option uh, which is that uh, people don't buy into this at all and everybody does it themselves um, and in that case I would do the same thing I would do it myself um, obviously with a lot less likelihood of success but again I absolutely do believe that there are companies now that are well positioned to get past the FDA and I absolutely believe they will and I know that there's a lot of e-liquid companies that are not going to even attempt to do a PMTA. So what is the outcome from there? If, if a company does not try and do a PMTA, what would they do? Well, they would probably look at TFN, tobacco-free nicotine. And I'm going to reach out to Ron Tully. Uh, I've got his phone number now. And my understanding is that uh, there's at least 14 companies that are... Uh, approved uh, buyers uh, or and or suppliers of the product and that that because it is not tobacco um, is one way to deal with the FDA the stuff is costly uh, it comes in a metal canister a one liter size and it costs five thousand dollars a liter for pure nicotine uh, tobacco free nicotine so it gets cut and cut and cut and cut again uh, and then ultimately it goes into the as a percentage that's either three percent or it's a third of one percent I think it's a third of one percent um, and so that's there's it's obviously at five thousand dollars a liter uh, it it goes a long way so uh, in talking with somebody else um, that I mentioned before a guy over at Holdfast Vapors, uh, Roland True Williams, he he was telling me that he thought, uh, and this is very, it says before he launched the product, uh, which is a, a, a product called Sour Dream, which uses tobacco-free nicotine. Uh, it's, it's something that I need to try still. I haven't used tobacco-free nicotine. I don't know how it works uh, on me, that is, because... I use 12 milligrams and I and I'm hearing more people use to I think 12 milligrams is the sweet spot for nicotine users for people that are just in it for the nicotine which I am um, so I don't know how how quickly I will feel the nicotine will I get over nicked uh, if I if I vape too much now I I'll, I'll start to get a slight headache I might feel queasy um, or nauseous I guess the technical term is and I know if I'm vaping too much at 12 milligrams and what I do is I just stop vaping uh, I don't I don't have a six milligram that I use I just use 12 um, 
I don't know how TFN will work with that. I don't know how um, for for like cloud chasers for people that are using uh, zero. Well, that doesn't even make sense, obviously. For people that are using three and six, um, it'll probably be fine. Uh, they'll probably. So I I just don't know how you will feel the nicotine. What the what the sensation from the nicotine is. I've heard that it might be there's a left-handed and a right-handed molecule of nicotine I've heard that it might be one or the other and the one that we're currently using is the other so it might have a different effect on people that may or may not be true I mean it might it might be the exact same molecule I just don't know I need to get that information I need to either bring on uh, you know Ron Tully or I need to bring on uh, somebody that's a user of it that is very familiar with it and I need to get my hands on it but the theory is that it, because it is not nicotine, that you do that it is not controlled by the FDA. So if you make a product that has it, you're not controlled by the FDA. It's fantastic, all right. Eight eight doesn't mean anything anymore. That is the belief by uh, in the interview that I watched with Ron Tully. That's his belief, and it's also my belief. I've gone through uh, it, and I think that that's a I think that's true. That's what I'm saying. And I say that for the same reasons why I say that hardware without nicotine is also outside of the scope of the FDA when it's sold as a finished goods product. It is not a covered tobacco product and it is not uh, a finished goods tobacco product at the same time. And both of those things are true for hardware and both of those thing, same things are true for tobacco-free nicotine. So it could be the best thing ever to keep the industry going. And that is one reason why I was so concerned and am currently so concerned uh, with the Cole Bishop Amendment because it defined what would be regulated not as tobacco nicotine, but it changed the definition of what would be regulated to simply nicotine any form of nicotine so if the Cole Bishop bill passes and made into law tobacco free nicotine is then a covered tobacco product and all of the same things would apply so here's the dilemma is that VTA was pushing this Cole Bishop amendment and Ron Tully is on the board of VTA so either he does not agree with that with what I, my assessment that I just said or uh, and I'm wrong my assessment is wrong or uh, he doesn't think that there's a high chance that this thing's going to go through anyway or any number of things in the universe that I haven't thought of so I do want to reach out to him and, and see if I can get that information um, and uh, we'll go from there Ron Tully and and the whole company uh, that it is and I forgot the name of the actual I know it's tobacco free nicotine I think what's it called uh, Pharmanic Pharma and then NIC is the trademark and I think that's also the name of the company Pharmanic uh, I have to believe uh, balancing out what I just said uh, a larger assumption of what I don't know I'm assuming 
uh, I have to assume that they have had a lot of lawyers look at this, a lot of really good lawyers look at this, and a lot of evaluation of the regulatory law, and they've examined it closely. In the interview that I heard uh, with Ron Tully, uh, you know, they he explained his position with the lawyers. I have to re-listen to that interview again. Uh, but... Um, tobacco-free nicotine could be a gigantic savior to this industry um, and it, it, that is just what it is and so uh, with those caveats I just said there's still a lot of people out there that are saying that vape shops should pack it in uh, e-liquid companies should pack it in and uh, people should just give up and what I'm saying right now, there's a lot of reasons why people should be encouraged still. And those reasons are tobacco-free nicotine. The fact that the cost of doing a PMTA is nowhere near a million dollars per product. And those are, is what the FDA is saying. And so when the FDA is saying that a line of products can be put through the FDA it makes me believe more in this little project that I'm working on which is called VIA which is the Vaping Industry Alliance it's not an association it's a group of companies to work together to all get past the FDA and then once you get past the FDA then you go resume your normal marketplace competition and I think that the model is if you ever go to Costco and you see all those different wines and stuff there's a lot of different wines there's top shelf there's lower shelf there's there's two buck chuck Maybe it's three buck chuck at this point, uh, but uh, you know everybody has a place on that shelf, and that that shelf is equivalent to a vape shop. And so there's going to be the top shelf of the vape shop, the middle shelf, and the lowest shelf, and all of those are different market and product demographic to be sold to a certain set of clientele that the vape shop is going to cater to. And they all have their place. So if, if people can get their one, you know, their company through and some other companies, it is not a negative to have more companies go through. You want to have good companies go through. So uh, that's that. Uh, the one thing that I wanted to, uh, to put in here um, is that that project, well, the project that I'm working on, which is called VIA, uh, that if there are any manufacturers out there that are interested in doing something with this please uh, reach out to me my email address is vapingindustry at gmail.com vapingindustry at gmail.com I've talked to a lot of different people I'm still going to be knocking on your guys' doors if if you've uh, been getting voicemails from me I, I will continue to do that until you say no uh, but uh, certainly reach out to me if you have any interest in doing that and I as I've said before you know whether through me or through anybody else or just by yourself uh, whoever everybody that is making e-liquids right now should be planning on putting in a PMTA uh, because that will get you a third year under the worst case scenario uh, and you want that third year uh, I can't imagine anybody that's in business right now that doesn't want that third year. Uh, and again, I'll say it again, uh, that there will be e-liquid companies that are vaping only e-liquid companies 
that will get past the PMTA. I know it. Uh, I can't say it's a fact, but I, I'm telling you, I know that that is going to happen. I've talked to some of the companies which are uh, way ahead of where I'm going, but, you know, they're going to do it. So uh, that's that item. So again, reach out to me. Uh, you can do it either on Facebook. Well, my name is uh, Edward Wolf, W-O-L-F-F, on Facebook. And uh, you can also do it through vapingindustry at gmail.com. Uh, I guess the last item that I've got is uh, a little bit of information on Indiana. There was uh, there were some of the lawyers uh, that are involved in a broadcast over on Smoke Free Radio uh, last week with uh, Amy Lane uh, in Indiana. And uh, I listened to some of it. I thought it was a little convoluted and long. And so here's just a quick summary of what I think is going on and it boils down to only six different e-liquid makers can make e-liquids to be sold in Indiana right now uh, but if you have product on your shelves that you've already purchased uh, you can continue to burn that inventory off so there are some stores in there that have inventory that they can still burn off is my understanding um, Anyway, that it, that might come down to a detail as far as uh, whether it's from those companies or not. I'm I'm not so sure. I'm not Indian. I'm I'm 2,500 miles away from Indiana. The federal lawsuit lost, and they're going to try and appeal that. Uh, so this is the one from smoke uh, from right to be smoke free. Uh, that that did not get the result that they wanted. They're going to try and appeal it. So that was the some of the bad news. Uh, there was some news about uh, some California security company uh, that apparently was a whole bogus operation that got approved at the last minute. Um, and then it looks like that that new security company is not going to be able to do it. Um, it, 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 it. The good news is that it looks like more governmental and regulatory malfeasance in Indiana, which is unfortunately what Indiana is becoming known for. Uh, so it there there's some bad actors, some bad approvers, some I, I don't know what went on, but apparently there was an article in the Indianapolis uh, Business Journal, I think it was, and uh, you know it's just some bogus stuff going on with another security company. So then there's still the so the federal lawsuit failed. They might appeal it. Then there's the state one, which is being done by Evan McMahon and Hoosier Vapors. So they got a lot of grief from a lot of people that they were doing this, but it's still flying. People believe that the the, the state case is not going to ultimately win. However, from my understanding, it's the, the judge is still really considering it. And so I kind of believe that it has more legs than some of these lawyers that, that think it doesn't have that much legs. Uh, I think that to a judge that the appearance of all of this stuff really should give the judge who my understanding is a woman pause to, to how they're going to react to this, whose side uh, should she act upon. And I think that she, they should, a reasonable judge should rule in favor of Hoosier Vapors because there, if there's so much obvious, uh, corruption and, and game playing being done that a judge should be able to see that. So that state case is still running and I'm not sure where the outcome is. 
the what, what when it will be. Uh, however, there's another case from a company called Good Cat Vapors, which is an out-of-state company that is sued, and their case is getting traction. And there's going to be a uh, a hearing on Monday uh, to whether or not they can get this preliminary injunction. And the belief is that on Monday we'll know if Good Cat was able to get this injunction. If that injunction happens, that's going to throw out the security requirement because the security the the federal rules will will have power over interstate commerce over what Indiana is trying to subject. So uh, the I forgot the exact term which it is uh, the uh, precedence or uh, whatever the the right term is when the federal that the states have to oblige themselves to the federal laws and that's because it's interstate. It's not. It's crossing state lines. So if GoodCat is able to get that injunction, my understanding is that multiple other companies are going to come on um, and say that the federal preemption also applies to them. That's the correct word for preemption. And so if if that happens, then other people will jump onto that, and it'll be a high chance that if the security requirement is removed, that out of state vendors will be able to legally sell into the state of Indiana. That still leaves a question mark in my mind of what the case is for in-state manufacturers. I have a hard time believing that you're going to have out-of-state able to come in and in-state not be able to uh, to do that. So here's one scenario is that GoodCat wins. Uh, these other companies come on and say uh, we should have the right to be able to sell in, in, into Indiana and then there's a judge sitting on uh, Evan's case and then Evan is going to go well how is it fair that people in state have to go by all these crazy security requirements by Mulhot security and then people from out of state can't how is that fair and then make a pleading to the judge literally pleading please uh, to the judge uh, and I think I think a reasonable judge should say well you can't and and how well it's founded on law is another question but a reasonable judge should say look they, they're doing it from out of state we've got people in state uh, I'm a state judge why should not the people of Indiana be able to do the same thing as the people from neighboring states I think it's a compelling argument uh, that I would try and do that However, again, uh, I've litigated, um, but I'm not trained. And uh, again, so that's going to be on Monday. And uh, other companies will come on. If GoodCat wins, other uh, companies will come on. Um, and it would throw out the security requirements. So that's that's how I understand Indiana to date. Um, I guess the key message is Monday, GoodCat Vapor, asking for preliminary injunction the belief is is that the court will either issue that or not issue that on Monday if it is issued multiple other companies are at the ready to jump onto that and say us too if it's us too then you'll have multiple companies being flowing back into the vape shops so uh, if you're a vape shop in Indiana, you know, take a vacation, I guess, for a little while, but come on back because it looks like, you know, there is a reasonable chance that you're going to have e-liquids coming back in again. At least I hope.
this is going to be the what the FDA is communicating specifically to vape shops for vape shops and it's the information that it's telling you so if you're a vape shop it's time to listen businesses sponsored by the US Food and Drug Administration and its Center for Tobacco Products I'm David Racine thanks for joining us today FDA recently issued a final rule extending its authority to regulate additional tobacco products and this webinar is one of the first in a new series of webinars designed to assist regulated tobacco industry. Today, we'll be focusing on vape shop establishments. And joining me from the Center for Tobacco Products to explain the highlights of the regulations for vape shops is David Keith, Director of the Division of Enforcement and Manufacturing in the Office of Compliance and Enforcement. We won't be taking any live questions during today's presentation. However, at the end of the program, we'll provide you with information on how you can send your questions to the center. Also, during today's presentation, we'll be discussing the effective dates and compliance dates for the various requirements. We encourage you to visit our website for more detailed information about the actual calendar dates for the various provisions. All right, let's get started. David, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. First, let's go ahead and cover where FDA gets its authority to regulate tobacco products. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, or the FDNC Act, as amended by the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act, or the TCA, gives FDA authority to regulate the manufacture, distribution, and marketing of tobacco products. Initially, FDA regulated cigarettes, cigarette tobacco, roll-your-own tobacco, and smokeless tobacco. The FDNC Act also allows FDA to regulate any other tobacco products that the agency deems in a regulation to be subject to the law. Now that the deeming rule has published, FDA has extended its regulatory authority to cover all products that meet the definition of a tobacco product except accessories of those newly regulated tobacco products. The FDNC Act defines tobacco product in part as any product made or derived from tobacco that is intended for, for human consumption. This definition includes any component, part, or accessory of a tobacco product. The deeming rule also defines component or part and accessory for the purposes of its requirements. Component or part as defined means any software or assembly of materials intended or reasonably expected to alter or affect the tobacco product's performance, composition, constituents, or characteristics, or to be used with or for the human consumption of a tobacco product. The term excludes anything that is an accessory of a tobacco product. Some examples of components or parts of the newly regulated tobacco products include cigar tobacco filler, filters, batteries for electronic nicotine delivery systems or ENDS, and cigar tips. The deeming rule defines accessory to mean any product that is intended or reasonably expected to be used with or for the human consumption of a tobacco product, does not contain tobacco, and is not made or derived from tobacco, and meets either of the following is not intended or reasonably expected to affect or alter the performance, 
composition or constituents or characteristics of a tobacco product or is intended or reasonably expected to affect or maintain the performance, composition, constituents, or characteristics of a tobacco product, but, is, but solely controls moisture and or temperature of a stored product, like a humidor, or solely provides an external heat source to initiate but not maintain combustion of a tobacco product, like a lighter. Some other examples of accessories of newly regulated products are pipe pouches, ashtrays, cigar cutters, or hookah carrying cases. Remember that FDA has not extended its regulatory authority to accessories of newly regulated products at this time. Up until the deeming regulation was issued, FDA only regulated cigarettes, cigarette tobacco, roll-your-own tobacco, and smokeless tobacco under its tobacco product authorities. So are the requirements for these tobacco products still in place? Yes, we still regulate those products. For more information about those requirements for the currently regulated tobacco products, we encourage you to visit our website. As we see on this slide, we now regulate other tobacco products, including, but not limited to, those which are listed on the slide. For example, electronic nicotine delivery systems, or ENDS, pipe tobacco, cigars, hookah tobacco, e-liquids, and any other product that meets the definition of tobacco product under the FDNC Act, except accessories of newly regulated tobacco products. So the key here, uh, which I've been saying, anybody been listening to this show, uh, all of this applies to tobacco products. What do you need to be a tobacco product? You need tobacco, and in this case, nicotine is considered tobacco. And what are some of the other important terms that are used in the rule? As we will discuss throughout today's presentation, the preamble to the deeming rule explains that some requirements will apply to covered tobacco products and that FDA intends to limit enforcement of certain other requirements to finished tobacco products. When we discuss finished tobacco products, we will be focusing on certain Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act provisions that now automatically apply to the newly regulated products. The term finished tobacco product refers to a tobacco product including all components and parts sealed in final packaging intended for consumer use. Some examples of finished tobacco products are pipe tobacco, cigars, and ends, as well as cigar tobacco filler, hookah tobacco, filters, cigar tips, and e-liquids sold separately to consumers. I'm still saying it has to, to be a finished tobacco product, it has to have tobacco. And when they give their example of electronic nicotine delivery systems, that by its own words requires nicotine because it's a nicotine delivery system which has nicotine. And so they clearly say they're going to cover e-liquids, e-liquids that have nicotine. So that, that is the definition of finished goods tobacco products. Then there's also something called covered tobacco products, which he's about to say. When we discuss covered tobacco products, we'll be focusing on the new requirements found in FDA's tobacco regulations. The regulation defines this term as any new tobacco product 
deemed to be subject to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act by the deeming regulation, but excludes any component or part that is not made or derived from tobacco. Some examples of covered tobacco products are pipe tobacco, cigars, ends, liquid nicotine, cigar tobacco filler, and hookah tobacco. It is also important to understand that some newly regulated tobacco products will be both covered and finished. Again, we will get into more detail about these terms and how they apply to newly regulated tobacco products later in the presentation. Now we're going to be focusing our attention on electronic nicotine delivery systems, or ENDS, and the components and parts of ENDS. FDA generally thinks of ENDS as tobacco products that use an electronic or other power source to heat e-liquids, tobacco, or other materials derived from tobacco. So could you give us a few examples of ENDS products? On this slide, we have several examples of ENDS products, like e-cigarettes, e-cigars, and vape pens. On the right side, we share examples of components and parts of ENDS products, like e-liquids and tank systems. And we're using the term vape shop, so what do we mean by the term vape shop? A vape shop is an establishment that can sell a variety of products, but generally sells ENDS products, including their components or parts. Vape shops may also mix, prepare, or combine liquid nicotine and other components of tobacco products for direct sale to consumers for use in ENDS. When a vape shop participates in those activities, it would also be considered a tobacco product manufacturer under the FDNC Act and would be subject to the same provisions of the FDNC Act as other tobacco product manufacturers. We will go over these requirements a little later in today's presentation. So are you saying that a vape shop could be a tobacco product retailer and a tobacco product manufacturer under the FDNC Act? Yes. And in those cases, the vape shop would be subject to applicable requirements of both tobacco product manufacturers and retailers under the FDNC Act and FDA regulations and subject to inspection by the Food and Drug Administration. First, let's talk about vape shops as tobacco product retailers. The term retailer means any person, government, or entity who sells tobacco products to individuals for personal consumption or who operates a facility where self-service displays of tobacco products are permitted. And would a vape shop that sells ENDS devices or e-liquids online also be subject to the retailer requirements? Yes, it would. So, David, could you go over some of the requirements for retailers under the Act and FDA's regulations? Sure. On this slide, we will cover requirements that apply to all newly regulated tobacco products. One of the requirements is a prohibition against free samples. This requirement will be in effect for retailers and other entities 90 days after the publication date of the deeming regulation. There's also a prohibition. So the way to go around that is that you charge a fee for sampling. Not a sample, it's sampling. Um, and uh, as many samples as they want. I suggest still that you sell a sealed drip tip that gets them the right to use your sampling devices and they must use obviously that clean and sterile drip tip. Uh, so the whole thing with samplings is a very easy hurdle. Uh, you don't have to jump over it, you just walk right over it. Against selling a newly regulated tobacco product 
without a marketing authorization unless the product is grandfathered. We will get into more detailed uh, information about grandfathered products later in the presentation. Retailers also have certain responsibilities when it comes to modified risk tobacco products. 90 days after the publication of this regulation, all newly regulated tobacco products will be subject to the modified risk provisions in Section 911 of the FD&C Act. Those provisions prohibit the introduction into interstate commerce of modified risk tobacco products unless there is an FDA order in effect for those products. Some examples of modified risk tobacco products that will require an order 90 days after publication are those whose label, labeling, or advertising claim are lower risk, less harmful, or contain a reduced level of a substance than another commercially marketed tobacco product. Now some people are saying that as a vape shop you can't tell somebody that this product has less harm than a cigarette. I don't think that's true and I base that upon what this slide is saying. It's talking about uh, representations on the label, the labeling, or the advertising claims. And none of those things are done by uh, what your vape shop employee is telling the prospective vape uh, shop customer. Now, the closest thing that it could come to that would be advertising claims. But I do not think that an advertising claim is the same legal definition as uh, sales and uh, sales. You know, what a sales staff does. I don't think it's the same. Um, I don't think that this is that big of an issue. But I've heard some people saying that they believe that if your vape shop employee uh, were to say this is safer than smoking, that, uh, you know, uh, the black helicopter is going to swoop in, drop a guy down uh, from a rope, uh, you know, all in gear and uh, tell you that you uh, can't sell the product and, and take you out of business. I, I just don't think that's the case. For a retailer, this means that any modified risk tobacco product that is in violation of Section 911 becomes adulterated 90 days after publication of the rule. At that time, it will be illegal to sell or distribute those products across state lines, and it will also be illegal for retailers to receive such products in interstate commerce and offer them for further distribution or sale. So again, he's talking about it's associated with the product. So it's flowing to the product itself. It is not flowing to your employee. There's a different compliance date timetable for newly regulated modified risk tobacco products with labels, labeling, or advertising using the descriptors low, light, or mild, or similar descriptors. This restriction is already in place for cigarettes, cigarette tobacco, roll your own tobacco, and smokeless tobacco. However, for newly regulated products such as pipe tobacco, cigars, and ends, those products cannot be introduced into interstate commerce beginning 90 days plus 13 months after final publication of the regulation without an order from FDA. The deeming rule also extends certain existing requirements found in FDA's regulations to newly regulated covered tobacco products. All right, so you've used that term again. Why don't you remind us what you mean by a covered tobacco product? A covered tobacco product is defined as any product made subject to the Tobacco Product Authorities of the FDNC Act by the deeming rule. 
but excludes any component or part that is not made or derived from tobacco. Examples of covered tobacco products that relate to vape shops include ends, generally like e-cigarettes and vaporizers that contain e-liquid made from tobacco and hookah tobacco. As is currently in effect. So uh, again, uh, you know, maybe either I'm, I'm listening uh, too closely or, or, and people aren't listening closely enough or, or I'm wrong. And uh, I guess I'm, I'm putting myself more out on the gauntlet here because what he just said is that contain nicotine. And I'll try and rewind this without breaking it. Uh, but he's going to say that contain nicotine. Include ends, generally like e-cigarettes and vaporizers that contain e-liquid made from tobacco and hookah tobacco that contain e-liquid from tobacco. As is currently in effect for cigarettes, cigarette tobacco, roll your own tobacco, and smokeless tobacco, retailers must also not sell newly regulated covered tobacco products to anyone under the age of 18 and must verify the date of birth by photo ID for anyone under the age of 27 attempting to purchase these products. Retailers must so I, I think for a vape shop that uh, it's going to make sense not to let anybody into the store whatsoever that doesn't meet the minimum age requirement of either 18 for national or whatever your state is. So in California, that's now 21. So uh, if you're worried about uh, people getting locked into their cars, maybe if you had a staging area that uh, in the front that has a little gate or something uh, where people can stand around uh, inside of an air-conditioned building, uh, you know, if they want to have their kids or something out there, uh, I would, you know, if you have the room and space to do that in your vape shop where you have sort of a, a lobby uh, and then the entrance into the actual vape shop shop part of the uh place that'd be good uh, otherwise uh, most of these vape shops are going to be in strip malls anyway and their kids can go to the next place so I am concerned that you know uh, some some people argue that they, they can't bring their kids in there and it's too hot and they're going to get boiled in a car it's a legitimate concern so if your vape shop can can somehow cater to uh, the mother that has a couple of kids by having that little staging area that is not the vape shop I would encourage that uh, but I would not at the same time uh, into the store section. I would, the only way to, to avoid getting uh, snagged and, and, and beat up by your local health department is if you put really stringent policies for your employees. Uh, and it makes sense to do. It's just no reason not to. Must comply with these requirements beginning 90 days after the publication date of the deeming regulation. And that's an important requirement for our audience to know, isn't it? Yes. For the products that we regulate before deeming, the two most common violations we have seen in brick and mortar stores were sales to minors under the age of 18 and failure to verify the date of birth by photo ID for those under the age of 27 attempting to purchase these products. Let me go ahead and... So it's, again, what... In the reference to a previous show on a different webinar said they're going to be going after inspection of the vape shops on 
August 9th. They're going to kick that thing in right away. What they're coming in to look for is what he just said. They're looking for people uh, that are not being carded and people that are buying that are under 18. Uh, and so uh, there, you know, there might be something where they're going to say somebody looks like they're 25. It's subjective how old they look. So I don't know exactly how they're using that uh, that looks younger than 27. They're, they're probably going to send in like a 21-year-old, I guess. I don't know how they're going to do that. It's just going to be easier that you card people each time. Um, and that, you know, to make a purchase at your point-of-sale system, uh, that your employees should be trained, that they should just show their license, you know, hold up your license and, and look at it. Uh, and then there's scanners for licenses and things like that that I'd recommend, but uh, I'm not recommending those now. Give an example. If somebody under 18 came into the store to purchase an e-cigarette containing an e-liquid, the clerk should verify the date of birth by requesting a photo ID and then refuse the sale since the purchaser is under age 18. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And can I sell e-cigarettes in a vending machine in my store? Generally, no, under the deeming regulation. E-cigarettes and other ends covered tobacco products cannot be sold in vending machines unless the vending machine is in an adult-only facility where the retailer ensures that minors under the age of 18 are neither present nor permitted at any time. What about health warnings? I understand there's going to be a warning about nicotine that's going to be required to appear on covered tobacco product package labels and advertisements. Yes, there's a new requirement to include a nicotine addiction warning statement. The warning says, warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. This warning will be required to appear on all cigarette, tobacco, roll your own tobacco, and covered tobacco product package labels, such as pipe tobacco or e-liquid containing nicotine, if the product is manufactured, pack packaged, sold, or offered for sale, distribution, or import for sale, or distribution within the United States. This warning must appear on packages for these products that are manufactured as of 24 months after final publication of the rule and manufacturers must not introduce these products without the warning statement into domestic commerce as of 30 days after the 24-month effective date, regardless of when the product was manufactured. The nicotine warning statement must also be included in print advertisements and other advertisements with a visual component for cigarette tobacco, roll your own, and covered tobacco products other than cigars. So just if you're a vape shop, um, what I would do is I would be telling every one of my suppliers that I want that specific nicotine warning. Uh, I'm not looking at the slide right now. Uh, that that be put onto the bottles as soon as possible. Uh, that specific language. Because the way I heard that is even your existing inventory being sold in the shop must have that after 24 months and it would be a violation if the health department came in and saw it so obviously you're a vape shop you're gonna have existing inventory some of your product inventory 
could well be a year old. And so you want to get them to go on to that right away. That's just the smartest way to go about it. So I would be talking to your suppliers. Uh, you know, it's, it's obviously no panic right now. Uh, but within a year, you're going to want every one of your suppliers to be having that specific warning on, on the bottle. Uh, I mean, people can slide for a while, but there's no reason not to put it on. Retailers who create or direct their own advertisements for these products must comply with this regulation and include the nicotine warning in their ads for these products beginning 24 months after the publication date of the final deeming regulation. So a vape shop retailer who puts an ad in the newspaper for e-liquid containing nicotine would have to include the nicotine warning statement in the ad? Yes, once this requirement is in effect. However, assuming the requirement is in effect, a retailer would not be in violation of this regulation for packaging supplied to the retailer by the tobacco product manufacturer, importer, or distributor who has the required state, local, or alcohol and tobacco tax and trade bureau issued license or permit, or for advertising that was provided to the retailer by another responsible entity. If such packaging and advertising contains a health warning and the warning is not altered on the packaging or the advertisement by the retailer in a manner that is material to the health warning requirements. For example, the retailer tears the warning off the printed advertisement. Now earlier you mentioned that vape shops could also be tobacco product manufacturers. When would that be the case? Under the FDNC Act, a, a tobacco product manufacturer is any person including any repacker or relabeler who manufactures, fabricates, assembles, processes, or labels a tobacco product or imports a finished tobacco product for sale or distribution in the United States. A vape shop would meet the legal definition of a manufacturer if it mixes, prepares, or combines liquid nicotine and other components of tobacco products, creates or modifies aerosolizing apparatuses, or repackages or relabels ends products, just to provide a few examples. Like manufacturers of cigarettes, cigarette tobacco, Roll your own tobacco and smokeless tobacco products. Manufacturers of newly regulated tobacco products, including some vape shops, will be subject to certain reporting requirements under the FDNC Act as the effective date of the final rule. However, at this time, FDA intends to limit enforcement of those requirements to finished tobacco products. As a reminder, the term finished tobacco product refers to a tobacco product including all components and parts, sealed and final packaging, intended for consumer use, like a closed-end system, or e-liquid sold separately to the consumer for use in an open-end system. In contrast, an e-liquid that is sold or distributed for further manufacturing into a finished-ends product is not itself a finished tobacco product. FDA does not intend to enforce such requirements for those products. These requirements include ingredient listings, health document submissions, in harmful and potentially harmful constituents, or HPHC testing and reporting, in registration of establishments and listing of products, and pre-market review requirements, which we will discuss a little bit later in the presentation. The deeming regulation provides specific compliance dates for each of these provisions, which is identified here in the second column. 
For more information about these requirements, please review the Companion Small Entity Compliance Guidance that was published around the same date as the final deeming regulation. Okay, so I see that you put in the table on the slide something about small-scale tobacco product manufacturers. What's the relevance? Certain manufacturers of these newly regulated tobacco products are provided extra time to comply with the ingredient listing and tobacco health document submission requirements. For this policy, FDA generally considers a small-scale tobacco product manufacturer to be a manufacturer of any regulated tobacco product that employs 150 or fewer full-time equivalent employees and has annual total revenues of $5 million or less. As we previously discussed, the deeming regulation establishes a specific warning that must appear on all covered tobacco product packages and advertisements, except cigars. This warning is, warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Again, this warning must appear on packages for these products that are manufactured as of 24 months after final publication of the rule, and manufacturers must not introduce these products into domestic commerce without the warning statement as of 30 days after that 24-month effective date, regardless of when the product, uh, products were manufactured. The nicotine warning statement must also be included in print advertisements and other advertisements with a visual component for covered tobacco products other than cigars. Also, as we discussed earlier, manufacturers of newly regulated tobacco products are subject to the Act's Modified Risk Tobacco Product Requirements. As a reminder, 90 days after the publication of the deeming regulation, all newly regulated tobacco products will be subject to the Modified Risk Provisions in Section 911 of the FDNC Act. Those provisions prohibit the introduction into interstate commerce of Modified Risk Tobacco Products unless there is an FDA order in effect for those products. As we mentioned earlier, there's a different compliance date timetable for newly regulated modified risk tobacco products with labels, labeling, or advertising using the descriptors low, light, or mild, or similar descriptors. This restriction is already in place for cigarettes, cigarette tobacco, roll your own tobacco, and smokeless tobacco. However, for the, for the newly regulated products, such as pipe tobacco, cigars, and ends, th those products cannot be introduced into interstate commerce beginning 90 days plus 13 months after final publication of the rule without an order from FDA. There are also other specific packaging, labeling, and advertising requirements for all newly regulated tobacco products described in Section 903 of the FDNC Act. Generally, tobacco product packages and advertisements are prohibited from being false or misleading. Product labels, labeling, and advertising must bear certain required statements, and those statements must be pro prominently placed on the tobacco product labels, labeling, or advertising. And are there any other requirements for newly regulated tobacco product manufacturers? Yes. As a result of this final regulation, all newly regulated tobacco products will require pre-market authorization unless they are eligible for grandfather status, which means they are on the market as of February 15, 2007. However, the FDA does not intend 
to enforce the requirements of pre-market review against manufacturers whose tobacco products are on the market as of the effective date if they submit applications seeking marketing authorization within specific time frames after the effective date of the regulation. The submission dates for newly regulated tobacco products are 12 months for an exemption from substantial equivalence or SE, 18 months for an SE report, and 24 months for a pre-market tobacco application or PMTA. Unless the FDA has issued an order denying or refusing to accept the submission, manufacturers who submit applications by these deadlines will be subject to a continued compliance period for 12 months. As a result, we expect that these products will remain on the market for up to three years while manufacturers seek authorization under staggered compliance periods and during the period of time in which FDA reviews submissions. All right, well, thanks, David. You shared a lot of information with us today. Thanks for having me. FDA will be holding a live question and answer webinar about the deeming regulation for vape shops and manufacturers in the near future. We'll be scheduling and posting the data that. Okay, the follow-up one is already uh, run. In fact, I've already done the show on that. All right, so uh, that's the show. Uh, I don't think there's anything else. Uh, I'll look back over into the chat, and uh, I don't see any questions in chat. So everybody have a good weekend, and... Uh,